0: So I'm excited to uh, start a new series today, Uh, Lord willing, over the next four weeks, we're going to look at the book of Jonah, which you probably know something about, and uh, this is the first time I've really dug deep into this book personally, and uh, it's a short book. It's about a, a big city. More than 100,000 people that has a big revival. A lot of people coming, uh, turning from their sin and brokenness. It's about a giant fish or or a giant whale. Uh, It's about a storm. It's about repentance and turning from sin. It's about a, a plant that grows up overnight and about a tiny worm that destroys that plant And it's about a very reluctant prophet, a rebellious, in fact, follower of God who doesn't do what God asks him to do. Well, as I prepared this series, and we'll start today in Jonah chapter 1, as I was preparing for this, it really hit me that the story isn't about the city of Nineveh. It hardly gets any space, even though this big city has a big change of heart. It's not about that city. It's, it's also, then I thought, well, it's about Jonah, really. He's in every chapter, and he's kind of the focus. But as I dug in some more, I realized, you know what? It's, it's not about Jonah either, even though he's like the most reluctant and rebellious prophet ever. And what I realized, and what I think you will too as we dig into this book over the next several weeks, the book of Jonah is about God. It's about God and it is about making sense of what's going on in your life. When the storms come, when you have great success, when you have failure, and when you just get hurt by things happening around you. What it talks about is that God is always making waves in our lives, on the sea and in our lives. And what he wants to provide for us is what we most need to handle whatever life brings us. And that is an understanding of who he is, of of what he does And perhaps most important of all, of why he is doing it. So if you would, please join me as we read. This is the biggest, longest chapter in all of Jonah. And it's a little longer than we would normally read, but I think it's important for us to read all 16 verses of chapter 1. There's 17, but I'm going to stop at verse 16. So verses 1 through 16 of Jonah chapter 1. This is God's word. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship, which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. And the sailors became afraid and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us now, on on what account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And the men became extremely frightened and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. And then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not. For the sea was becoming even stormier against them. And they called on the Lord and said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, Do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. And the men feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is God's word. Father, would you meet us here Speak to us through your word. Reveal to us more of who you are, what you're doing, why you're doing it. That we might be encouraged. That we might be confronted. That we might have hope. In this world. But We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're, we're not sure exactly when the book of Jonah was written, but what we do know with, I think, pretty good certainty is that Jonah was a real person, an historical figure. Uh, Jesus speaks of Jonah several times and about his journey in the deep as a picture of what Jesus would do. But more than that, I think, is when Jesus speaks of Jonah's proclaiming to Nineveh when he finally gets to Nineveh, that Jesus says that the people of Nineveh actually existed and heard Jonah. So it's, it's clear in Jesus' mind, and this is enough for me, that... Jonah was a real person, despite these crazy things that happened, being swallowed by a giant fish, being spat up on land, going to a city, and seeing hundreds of thousands of people turn, and then ending the book arguing with God. It's a lot, but it seems Jonah's a real person. In fact, he's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 27, as a prophet who was speaking the word of God during the reign of King Jeroboam II. That would put him somewhere during the reign of Jeroboam, which was 793 B.C. to 753 B.C., give or take a couple of years. So Jonah is is living in in Israel in that time, in the northern kingdom as the, the nation of Israel had divided between Israel in the north and Judah in the south in that early part of the 700s B.C. And it was actually a prosperous time for Israel, the northern kingdom. They were living in somewhat of a golden age as their borders had expanded uh, to about the size of what they were under King David and King Solomon hundreds of years before. Things are going well, despite the fact that King Jeroboam is described as one of the most wicked kings in the history of Israel, right up there with the first King Jeroboam. So this is the context for Jonah living in that land, and it's even more profound that he, in 2 Kings, is mentioned as prophesying and predicting that those borders of Israel would be expanded, that God came to him in his word and said, this is what's going to happen, and Jonah proclaimed it, and it happened that they were prosperous, that they were expanding. And so it's not unreasonable to think that, you know what? Jonah might be somewhat of a hero, a national hero, because he predicted success for the people, and it came about. So during that time of prosperity, though, if you're familiar with the Bible story and the history, you might know that just a couple of decades after King Jeroboam, In 722 B.C., just 30 years after Jeroboam stopped reigning, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, was taken into captivity, conquered by the Assyrian Empire, and dragged hundreds of miles to a foreign land. In other words, in the midst of that prosperity, the end was near. And so though we don't know when this book was written... We can have an idea that the purpose is for a people who are in prosperity and who might face difficulties. and That's where you and I are, right? (laughs) Every one of us is probably in some situation of success or some situation of hardship and calamity or right in between them. And that's what this book seems to be geared at, that Jonah would speak to us and reveal to us, and cement in the hearts and minds of God's people what we most need as we go through challenging seasons. As prosperity declines or arises, as difficulties come or they go, the main thing that we need, and what the Lord provides for us here, even in these verses, but in the whole book of Jonah, is an understanding of who the Lord is that what he does, and why he's doing it. And so first of all, what is it that we need to know about the Lord God? You need to know that he has a passion for all people. God has a passion for all people. It shows up right at the beginning of our passage where he says to Jonah there in the land of Israel, in a land that's, that's prosperous, get up and go to Nineveh, this wicked city. Jonah, make the journey hundreds of miles across various terrains, up and down mountains, facing dangers, whatever it will take you, to go those hundreds of miles, go. And the sense of the language there is actually one of urgency. That that the Lord is saying by repeating the things, arise and go, it says basically, hey, get moving, don't delay. Go now, Jonah. In the midst of a flourishing nation, in the midst of being kind of important, having predicted success and prosperity, the Lord is saying to Jonah, leave it. Go far away. Because God has a passion for all people. Not just Israel, not just you, all people. This is is about God's character. And the scriptures tell us that God is love. 1 John chapter 4, 7 and 8 says that. God is love. It's part of His nature. It's fundamentally who He is. In fact, God is love even to His enemies. He says to Jonah, go to Nineveh, this pagan city, this distant city, hundreds of miles away, which has been an enemy in the past, not as significant an enemy as it would be in the future, but go to them. In fact, go to them in the midst of their hardships, because Nineveh at this time, uh, located uh, by near what is modern-day Mosul, Iraq, not far away from there. They're in a, in a time of of decline. They've had riots in their city. They've had rebellions against leadership. They've had poor leadership. Nineveh, as a city in the empire of Assyria, is struggling. And it would be, in just a few decades, by the end of the 700s, the capital of a flourishing empire. But right now, when God says to Jonah to go, he's sending him to a really bad place. There's the enemies, there's the lack of prosperity. And it's a sign that God has a passion for all people. And he means for you and I to have a similar passion. He means for you and I to love other people. People that are not like us. People that we would even consider enemies. People who are them in our eyes. Jesus makes this super clear in the Sermon on the Mount. He says in Matthew 5, verses 43-48, through 48, that to love our enemies and the basis for that love extended to enemies, Jesus says, is that therefore you will be like your Father in heaven who gives sun and rain even to the righteous and the unrighteous. God has a passion For all people his love even to his enemies and he wants you and I to be like him and that character is in us you know more than you would realize if you only watch uh, regular mainstream media and the news every night which makes money and gains your attention and keeps it by presenting things that are not very good research has shown there's a bias in the news toward negative events, because that's what we tune into. Yeah, crime is serious, and murders are not good, and the good things rarely get reported, and if they do, we don't really pay much attention. But if you have interactions with people in your own life, in fact, research has shown that In 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 an experiment where people were commuting to work, they said some of you engage with the person next to you, a stranger, try to start a conversation. Others don't. And they measured afterwards. And 100% of the people who engaged with other people on their commute and the other people that they talked to were happier and felt better having done that than the people who just sat there quietly thinking... That would be weird to talk to other people. Or they probably don't want to talk to me. You know, our hearts are built and wired with a passion for other people. We can't exist on our own. That's how God has made us. We are in his image. It's part of why he has a passion for all people. Because they're all created in his image. And so are you. So am I, every one of us, no matter the color of your skin, no matter your educational background, no, no matter your economic background, no matter your language, no matter your ability. God has a passion for you and we, we have a passion for all people as well until we get twisted. And we'll have to wait till chapter 4 to understand why Jonah runs away. And why he does not share God's passion for all people. He doesn't tell us now, and so we're not going to talk about it now. You can sneak ahead and look, but not right now. Look later. You know, this is God's plan for us. This is, this is part of what he wants us to be. So for us, we need to cultivate a passion for all people. And it's just wonderful that we have that opportunity, that God has blessed us to be with people from many tongues and tribes and nations right here in this congregation, to be in a community that's full of people from all tongues and tribes and nations. It is such an opportunity for us to show what God created us to be, that human beings can rise above our differences and connect and care for one another and love one another, even our enemies. If we were to do that, could you imagine how it would transform politics, how it would transform our schools, how it would transform our homes. Can we model that? Can we work on that? And it could be just as simple as starting a conversation online with somebody at the Walmart or somewhere else, right? Could be on the subway and be careful, okay? Don't be foolish. There are dangerous people. And consider where maybe the Lord is calling you to reach out, to just smile to engage people in safe spaces, take a little bit of a risk, and believe that God has a passion for all people and that's inbuilt in all of us. And so when you reach out more often than not, I have seen this on the streets of 69th Street here. It's amazing to me how many people will listen. And it's part of being in a diverse community because my experiences with most Americans, they're like, no, go away, whatever, right? But we have such a diverse community that people are willing to talk, especially if you just smile. You know to engage and tap into that passion we all have for all people, but that's not all that we would need to know. We we need to know God has a passion for all people, but He also has power over all things. God has power over all things. He he literally works in everything. God works in everything. The Lord. Jonah confesses, professes in verse 9, is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He apparently is the one who continues to work in it, even in the bad things, because he hurls in verse 4 a great wind on the sea and the great storm on the sea so the ship was about to break up. God works in everything, even in the bad things. The Bible speaks of him as God. In the Hebrew, it's El or Elohim. He's the high and lifted up one. He is Adonai in the Hebrew, Lord or Master. He's over all. He has authority and power. He speaks and the wind and the waves obey Him. He speaks and light is created. He's El Shaddai, God Almighty, who provides with His power. He brings prosperity to Israel prophesying through Jonah that they would expand their borders. And it comes about. And he also has power and uses it even in the bad things as we experience them, like storms that threaten to sink us. As Job put it in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, the Lord gives... And the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a hard word. But what it's, it deals with is God's sovereignty, we call it. That the God is in control. He has power over all things. He, even the bad things. But here's the thing that He's not responsible for. Sin. Rebellion. We we do evil. We rebel. We fall short. We disobey. We don't do what we want to do. We do what we don't want to do, as Paul wrestles with in Romans chapter 7. We contradict what we profess to believe. Jonah here, a prophet God has used for his purposes, says at the same time, I serve the Lord God of heaven, maker of the sea and the land, And I'm fleeing from his presence. Surely Jonah knows Psalm 139, which we read earlier in the service, where David, hundreds of years before Jonah, wrote for the hymn book of the people of God, where can I flee from your presence? You're there, you're down there. You're over here, you're there. There's nowhere I can flee. And Jonah knows this. (laughs) And he flees. This is the nature of sin, of rebellion. It doesn't make sense. One theologian of old said basically all all sin is the result of practical atheism. Where in the moment, in the choice, in the decision, we decide God doesn't really exist. So we're going to do what we want to do. Act out of accord with our own beliefs, our own convictions. And it's destructive, it's harmful, it's deadly for us. The Lord works even in the bad things. In fact, do you realize, have you considered this, that part of God's sovereignty, part of the way God works, part of how he uses his power is to curse the ground. That would bear thorns and thistles. It would be hard for us to work. That he has cursed childbirth. That it would be painful. That the very functions that he created us for, dominion and multiplication... Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 1 talks about. That he has cursed those things. He has made them hard for us. And he has decreed death at the end of the road for every one of us. This is how he's using his power among other ways. And the thing is, what we need to know is that He's not doing that for no reason. He's not doing those things just to spite us, to make life hard for no reason. That the Lord is using those things in conjunction with His passion for all people. He uses His power... To bring about his purposes. Before we move on to that thought, I just want to make clear that sometimes we experience difficulties in our lives, like Jonah is, right? Where he is facing a storm and death and destruction because he's rebelling against God. And and sometimes that's why we experience difficulties. Sometimes we experience difficulties like the sailors, right? Because we're with somebody who's rebelling against God. And we're somewhat bystanders, almost collateral damage, but not really, because God doesn't waste anything. God's at work in all of those things for all of our good. This is how much power he has, that he can at the same time focus his attention on Jonah and teach, teach him a lesson, at the same time be giving a lesson to the sailors who are there, that then all of this works together, even despite Jonah's rebellion, that it will teach a lesson to the people of Nineveh when Jonah gets there. And then at the end of the story, Jonah in his rebellion still in chapter four can then teach us a lesson as we consider it all as a whole, as part of all of the scriptures that God has given us, that it all is working together for our good and for his glory. So sometimes the, the, the difficulties in your life are due to your own sin and rebellion. Sometimes it's because of other peoples. And, and the reality is, you know what? You just, we just live in a fallen world. Things are broken. As Jesus said in John chapter 9, the, more, the man who was born blind, his disciples said, who sinned? The man or his parents? Jesus said, neither. But that God might be glorified through Jesus' healing of him. That there's always purpose. There is no suffering without the intention of God behind it and the good purposes of God behind it. Because His power over all things is working at the same time with His passion for all people. And the purpose of it is, this is our third point, the purpose of it all is that you might experience His presence through all eternity. That God is working His passion and His power that you would experience His presence through all eternity. Because God shares life. That's what He wants to do. That's that's His purpose in creating human beings. His purpose in in continuing to put up with us is that, that God is sharing life with us, We would not have life unless God had shared it with us. And he has chosen to do that. The storm comes because of Jonah's disobedience, fleeing from the presence of the Lord, acting irrationally. Yet rather than just zapping Jonah, have you thought about this? Rather than just zapping Jonah and going with somebody else to get the mission done, God puts up with Jonah. God pursues him. God draws near to Jonah in a storm. Even through the sailors around him saying, get up and pray. You know, Maybe your God cares. There's, there's evidence of God there. If Jonah would listen. God pursues. God never gives up pursuing. Adam and Eve, they, they, they do the one thing God said not to do. They take from the fruit that he said, don't eat that fruit. And then they hide, they flee, they they move away, they cover up, and God draws near and says, what's going on? Did you do what I asked you not to do? God knows they did. But he interacts with us. He draws near, he doesn't cut off. He shares life, continues to be gracious to us, The thing is, He shares life. It comes from Him. That it's only in the presence of the Lord that we have life. And so so we ought to desire that life and draw near to God. But we don't. We run away. And God in His grace has cursed the ground. He's cursed childbirth. He's brought death at the end of our lives because He wants us to realize that His presence is the place of life that the ultimate goal is that we would be with Him forever. Never to be separated. We would always experience life with Him. And without Him is disorder. It's it's chaos. Look at these sailors as they're experiencing the storm. Every man is crying out to his God. And nothing's changing. You know, they're probably from different nations, probably have different gods that they're worshiping and serving, probably crying out in different languages. And there they are. And there's nothing happening. So the captain goes down to Jonah. He's like, how could you be sleeping? Why don't you cry out to your God? Maybe your God will show concern for us and we won't die. We won't perish. That's disorder. That's chaos. Uncertainty. These folks don't know if their God is listening. They don't know if their God cares and they think maybe your God does care call out to him. And there's the Lord sharing life with Jonah. In the midst of the chaos and disorder that comes with rebellion, God is at work. Even in the lives of those sailors. So the way God shares his presence with us, primarily and fundamentally we experience it, is through his word through what he has said. He has revealed himself. There would be no other way we would know the one who is high and mighty and over all, right? Unless he stooped down. We can't climb up. We can't get there. He stoops down. He speaks to us. When we come to know him, he sends his spirit to us. That experience of him, right? That's how we know him. And so the Lord through Jonah seems to be saying the solution, guys, to this problem is that you throw me overboard, Jonah says. Throw me into the water, and then the sea will be calm for you. Throw me into the sea. In verse 13, what do they do? It says, The, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not. For the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Did you notice as we were reading it? It's like stormier and stormier and stormier. God has got a dial, and He's turning up the storm. And they say, no, I don't really want to throw this guy in the, in the, I don't want to kill this guy. That doesn't seem to make sense to me. You know, they have enough of the image of God in them that they're resistant to what would actually, Jonah says, set them free. But they're resistant. They say, well, maybe we could just get him back to dry land and he could pick up there and go head to Nineveh. It would be God's problem at that point. You know? And so they start rowing and God says, that's not what I want. In fact, what I think God is saying through this is that Jonah needs to die. The path has been laid for him. If you read as it's going on here, that Jonah needs to die. He has been on a descent the whole time. He lived up in, uh, in Galilee. Galilee. Near as we can tell, a couple of miles northeast of where Jesus would live most of his life 800 years later. And so he travels from up there down to the coast to the city of Joppa where there's a port. And he gets on this ship. But he goes down, it says, from where he was to Joppa. Then he pays the money for the ship to go with them. And then he goes down into the hold. And what happens then after that? He goes down to Joppa, down into the ship, fleeing from the presence of the Lord. It says it explicitly multiple times. In chapter 2, what happens? Again and again, the theme pops up that Jonah goes down, descends into the depths, sinking deep down, seaweed wrapped around his head. Jonah's on this descent. It's not enough for him to just get back on track at this point. He has rebelled against the power of the universe. He has said, I don't want life, and I even know that life is with you. And the Lord says, you have to die. And the men give up finally and say, we earnestly pray, verse 14, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, Do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. They trust that what God says through Jonah is what's right. And they make this really hard decision to throw Jonah into the sea. And they immediately experience life. Verse 15, they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Verse 16, the men feared the Lord greatly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The Lord is working with His power and His passion that you would experience His presence, that you would have life. This is what he wants for you. And he wants you to see here in the picture of Jonah that that life will only come by obeying him. Life will only come as we understand what he wants. Life will only come as we draw near to him. Life will only come as we embrace him, trust him, obey him, cling to him. Fear him only. When we give up our own ways and lay it before him, it provides life. Provides abundantly. You know, Jesus used Jonah and his descent into the great fish as a picture of his work on the cross and descending into the grave. And that gives us a tremendous advantage of understanding the message of how it is that we can experience life, how we can experience the presence of God. Though God is saying, in the broken world around us, in the pain we experience, and the suffering that comes our way, whether it's our fault or someone near us or just life in this broken world, God is saying to us that you're only going to experience life through coming to me. And you say, but I can't. I've messed up. I've sinned. I've run away from you. I've rebelled. And and the wages of sin is death. God has made that super clear that every single one of us, even for just one sin, is worthy of death and judgment. And Jesus says, you know, my mission on the cross and death is like Jonah going down to the deep. He deserved to die. You deserve to die. You deserve to pay the wages for your sin, but Jesus says, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to give my life. In fact, Jesus says that's why I came, because my passion for all people, I came to set people free from every tongue and tribe and nation, and heaven's going to be full of those people. Because I came, God says, to use my power, giving it up to become among you one who is weak, but that power that I have by my very nature was sufficient that I could bear the weight of all of your sin and brokenness, of all the damage that's ever been done to you, that I could bear that weight on the cross, pay the full penalty, submit to the power and justice of God. In a few days, reconcile your accounts that your debt would be paid in Full as I rise again from the grave and pour out upon you my spirit. To be with you forever. To give you an experience of life and hope that you're not going to have unless you draw near to God. But that's the paradox that we face, right? We're guilty before God. We don't want to go near Him. We want to hide. We want to cover up. We're in shame and brokenness. We're under the power of the evil one. But God says, listen to my word. This is all I require of you is to repent. Turn to me. Believe my promises. Believe that I have a passion for you for your soul to be right with me. I have the power to achieve it, that you would be set free. And what I want is for your, you to experience my presence, my life. Man, and if you haven't experienced that yet, I encourage you today to pray that the Lord would make that real to you. Take away the debt, the guilt, the shame. Break the power of sin in your life if you have experienced that i encourage you in the midst of your struggles remember the the passion the power and the presence of god incorporate it into your life and begin to step out begin to embrace it Show that passion to other people show kindness when you have been faced with enemies with harsh words Use your power, whether you're a leader or you're just sharing the word of God, use it. With confidence. And you know what you'll experience is more of the presence of God, and you have the great privilege of seeing others experience it as well to come into that relationship. There is no greater joy. One of the obvious things you can do is come to our Share Your Faith workshop. Get some simple tools to share with your children, with your spouse, with your friends, your neighborhood. You know. But you can even apply this, this today with some kindness, with some boldness, with a delight in the presence of God. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, We thank you for your grace, your mercy. We thank you that you came to die for us. You took our place. That we might take your place in the presence of the Father, knowing your love. Lord, reveal to us more of who you are as we face the challenges of life in this world.